Hey, what up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here, centered from Reality Podcast. It is December 1st. Welcome to December. We have arrived. Uh, I don't know how I feel about that. But anyways, it is December. It is quite cool out. Um, I just got back from the gym. I was blasting Back to the Moon by Gunna, which, by the way, huge banger, huge banger, great production, great flow. I'm a big Gunna fan. One day, maybe for fun, I want to do a whole podcast on how Basically, Gunna has been snitching on everyone, and now he's unpopular in the rap community. But that is a conversation for another day, or maybe just a whole other podcast in general. I'm sure someone has talked about it by now. But yeah, pretty cool out today. I was at Rayleigh's getting some groceries, and I just finished a run, and so I was in my shorts, and people were coming up to me going, oh my god, aren't you cold? Don't you know it's cold outside? And I'm like, yes, but when you're running, you're warm, and I just got done, and I still have shorts on. I'm okay. It's just amazing how many people were just just shocked. They're like, it's 42 and windy. I'm like, you should you should, you should go to Chicago in this uh, time of year. That that wind chill, <laughs> that that lake effect is a little bit different. So I think Chicago hardened me to these winters, and I would definitely take this weather, this temperature over an Illinois winter any time. But anyways, let's get started. We're gonna start today with our buddy, the infamous, the notorious George Santos, and. <laughs> George Santos, or whoever he is, honestly, has been expelled from the House of Representatives, and obviously there was this giant explosive report put out by the House Ethics Committee that I talked about a few weeks ago, and (laughs) there's a lot of problems in it. Stuff ranging from tax fraud, wire fraud, using campaign funds for Botox and OnlyFans. Uh, I mean, this is just a real fun character, and... He has, of course, pled not guilty to federal corruption charges, and this is kind of a big deal because he is only the sixth member ever to be ousted, and only the third since the Civil War. Now, I should note that usually the people that are expelled either have committed serious federal crimes and have been convicted, or they were actually taking up arms against the United States during the Civil War. So this is a pretty specific class of people that actually get expelled from Congress, and A little spoiler, I'll get into it later, but I am actually not in support of this. I hate George Santos. I think he's despicable. I think he completely and fraudulently lied to his constituents to get elected. He created a persona and a personality and an an entire person that just does not exist. And for that, I think he should be held accountable. But I don't know if it's a good idea to actually expel him without a new election because it just seems illiberal to me. And I'll get into more of that in a minute. But first, let's start with Matt Gates. And you know times are crazy when I actually agree with Matt Gates. I think this is a pretty funny clip. So he actually d- defends keeping Santos in, but also talks about why he doesn't, like, he doesn't like Santos and wants him to go, but he doesn't think this is the right way to do it. And he talks about some of the hypocrisy, including the Menendez stuff in the Senate, and why he hasn't left when he is being charged as an Egyptian spy. And it's because he hasn't been found completely guilty yet. So anyways, let's listen to this clip, and then I'll give some thoughts afterwards. Uh, he may consume my colleague from Florida, Mr. Gates. Gentleman from Florida is recognized. I do not believe that the Long Island crew is acting in bad faith, just exceedingly bad judgment. And here's why. Since the beginning of this Congress, there's only two ways you get expelled. You get convicted of a crime or you participated in the Civil War. And again, Gates is correct. I mentioned that a little bit ago. Neither apply to George Santos. And so I rise not to defend George Santos, whoever he is, 
<laughs> whoever he is. I, I love that so much. <laughs> but to defend the very precedent that my colleagues are willing to shatter. Now, let's speak to due process. Mr. Santos hasn't been convicted of anything, but we haven't even moved to expel the people who have. Mr. Bowman pled guilty to a misdemeanor for his little fire alarm stunt weeks ago. So like, while the F I, I think that one's a bit of a cheap shot. I mean, these things are very different, but anyways. This committee is marching to throw George Santos out of Congress. They take no action as to someone who actually pled guilty to a crime. What's that all about? And then there's all this talk about, well, he could have come and testified to the ethics committee, and he didn't. So he had his due process, but that belies the fact that he faces a trial and had Mr. Santos testified. Also, the ethics committee is not like a legal court. It's not an actual trial. They can just put out recommendations from my understanding. For the ethics committee, an argument could have been made that he waived any of his rights that we would have had at trial that any American would enjoy. So it was a, it was a procedural double bind that shouldn't be held against Mr. Santos as some sort of adverse inference. Let's also talk about this precedent. The fact pattern as to Mr. Santos is remarkably similar to the fact pattern of former representative Duncan Hunter. Duncan Hunter used campaign money. California Republican who's now been disgraced, by the way. On girlfriends and trips and home improvements and all sorts. Anyways, uh, I think that's all we have. It didn't have the part on the Mediate clip I played where he talks about Bob Menendez, but Gates does talk about how Senator Menendez basically has done worse things, corruption. You know, he's the gold bricks dude, the one who looks to be potentially an Egyptian agent who has been crafting foreign policy that is beneficial to Egypt for quite some time and making money off of that. And I think he does bring up a point that it seems like everyone is quick to get rid of Santos when there's a lot of other bad behavior going on. And I guess at the end of the day, I tend to agree with that. And it's not because, again, I, I think Santos is a shitty person and should not be anywhere near representing our country. But it's just not a good idea, and it sets up a dangerous precedent. Also, selfishly, our country is such a mess right now that he's actually, like, one of the least serious bad guys, at least. Like, he's not like the guys that tried to overturn the government. He's not like the Mike Johnsons who, who were the architects of the Texas lawsuits to overturn the election. You know, he's... He's not like Menendez selling secrets to the Egyptians. This is a guy who paid for Botox and OnlyFans and, you know, claimed that his mom died in 9-11 and that his family came from the Holocaust and that he got mugged in Brazil. Oh, my God, he set up a fake veteran dog fund. I mean, this is just a fascinating, fascinating grifter. And, of course, he wouldn't exist if he were, you know, outside of this Trump era, for sure, because the shamelessness is just insane to me. But he has not been found guilty of anything yet, and... This is a bad precedent, and I, I actually understand why in earlier votes to expel him, some Democrats even did not vote to expel him because they didn't like the idea of just being able to hold a majority vote to kick someone out when they've been democratically elected. You can see how that can backfire down the road, and I think people rightfully worry how it could. Now, Adam Serwer has a good point in The Atlantic in an article he wrote today. He writes here in quotes, Santos has not been convicted of anything yet. The comedic absurdity of his actions, having lied about his distinguished Wall Street background, Jewish heritage, academic and athletic achievements, animal rescue work, real estate holdings, as more, do not render him guilty beyond a reasonable doubt of the crimes which he has been accused. That is for a jury to decide. 
expelling Santos post-conviction would have been very justified. Pushing him out beforehand is not. Absolutely agreed. Is it embarrassing also, you know, that he was elected in the first place? Of course. But unfortunately, that is democracy. I mean, I was embarrassed when Trump got elected. But, and, and, and I mean, people did try to get him, um, get him kicked out of office for sure. But the role of members of Congress... In, 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 in Santos's case here as well, is to represent their constituents. And you, I don't think you should just be able to expel someone. And I, I think you should just have another election and let the people vote. And of course, I have heard other people argue that, well, he crafted a complete fictional character and lied to his voters. So the voters didn't even really know who he was. And if they did know who he was, they probably wouldn't have voted for him. That is true. And that's why I think they should have a, I don't know, a special election or something like that. And get him out or, or wait because, I mean, it's only two-year terms, right? So it's, it's not exactly like he's going to be there that much longer because I don't see him winning a re-election. His constituents probably hate him now. And so I think they should just let that happen. But I guess it's a mood point. The Economist also has a good article that talks about why and how it is so difficult to expel someone from the House. The article writes here in quotes, the Constitution gives the House and the Senate the right to, in quotes, punish its members for disorderly behavior and, with the concurrence of two-thirds, expel a member. I should note, two-thirds is pretty damn high. <laughs> it's, it's a very high bar by design. And this is because, from my understanding, our framers wanted to avoid interfering with the will of the people, right? And so if you can get a two-thirds majority to back expelling someone, it's probably for good reasons. And I guess that is probably a case, at least, as to why it's okay Santos was expelled, because there were enough people on both sides that are like, this guy is not fit for office. And I think it's uh, James Madison who summed this up pretty well. He wrote in quotes, the house is so constituted as to support in the members an habitual recollection of their dependence on the people. And... Then you also just have to remember that there are elections every even year, so every two years. So it's pretty easy to imagine if someone is a bad apple, they're going to get defeated in the upcoming election. Let's also talk about some of the other people that have been expelled. The first was this guy named John Clark of Missouri, and this was in 1861. And he actually took up arms against the government to fight for the Confederacy. And yes... That was a good reason to expel him from being a representative, and he was still in the union at that time. So anyways, yes. And The Economist also talks about how lesser misdeeds, even serious ones, were often tolerated. The other guys that were ejected were two Southern lawmakers after Clark for the same reason, which was disloyalty to the government and taking up arms against the union. And basically since then, there have only been two expulsions, one of them is Michael Myers of Pennsylvania, and this was in 1980. He was convicted, so found guilty, of taking bribes in an FBI sting operation. The Economist wrote, writes, sorry, he was caught on tape saying, money talks in this business and bullshit walks. <laughs> he was expelled. So we have to remember that the House Ethics Report that was published in mid-November alleged that Santos was doing this fraudulent activity for his own personal profit. And... These are allegations, and there should be a trial, and a jury should decide this. But right now, I think it's just a little bit too early to jump on this because so far, he, he has not been found guilty, and he hasn't taken up arms against the government, though he was an election denier, but that's a whole other thing. But one way or another, it's a mood point because he is expelled. 
But I worry that this sets a dangerous precedent going forward. Anyways, moving on, I want to talk about the red state versus blue state debate. This was hosted last night by Sean Hannity, and it was Rod, I wanted to call him Rob, Ron DeSantis versus Gavin Newsom. And I will give a few highlights of it, but I want to just start by saying this did not particularly feel like a objective debate where you're actually putting out the case for each of your states. What I mean is that Sean Hannity, right at the beginning of this, says, it's no secret that I'm a Republican, and he's wearing his red tie, DeSantis is wearing his red tie, and then you have Newsom wearing his blue tie. So there was just the symbolism, right off the bat, of two red ties teaming up on one blue tie. And Newsom even says it at the beginning, he's like, Sean, I see you have your tie as well. And that, I think, summed up the debate in a nutshell, is DeSantis got a lot of softball questions, and most of the stats that Hannity put up were cherry-picked statistics that mainly were on California and put California in a more negative light than Florida. And basically, Newsom was on the defensive all evening while both Hannity and DeSantis kind of teamed up and attacked California. So this seemed to me more like California on trial with DeSantis going after California and then Newsom not really getting enough chances to actually talk about Florida. And there is obviously a great time and place for statistics. And I will admit that, yes, some of the statistics for California just are bad. But then at the same time, it just seemed like they were cherry picking statistics. And what Hannity was doing was he was kind of just pulling some of these stats out of context, devoid of context, if you want to say. And I, I think something that's always kind of important to remember about statistics is that if if you understand statistics well, you can pretty much argue any side of an issue using specific statistics. I remember in my grad school days when we were taking like stats for public policy and looking into all of that, my professors time and time again would just argue that stats can be a dangerous weapon for anyone if they know how to properly apply them to a situation. And so that seems to me what Hannity kind of did here. Like, for example, they would talk about an issue and California would have a shit ton of problems and it would be like four times as bad as Florida. So you'd see a giant bar graph where California is super high, Florida's super low. And a lot of these stats were devoid of acknowledging trends over time, adjusting for California's larger population, just a few examples. And I, I was reading a Washington Post article that I think was really good on this. It talked about how this debate could have been really good because you have two governors in one room who maybe could really talk economics and talk about their case. But the article just talks about how instead it just felt like a partisan focus on bringing California down and making Florida look good. And Ron DeSantis a few months ago had said he was going to focus only on e economics, but it was not really the case. It was a lot of culture war issues. And what I'll say here, though, is that watching this, I kind of wish this really was the presidential debate, not Biden versus Trump, but these two, like I don't like DeSantis at all, and Newsom's not my favorite guy, but he's competent. And, and, and these two, at least there's some energy, and they were talking more about policy, and they weren't completely talking over each other. I don't know, it just felt a little bit more more appealing. The energy was better, more policy-based. And I'll admit, there were times when I think both of them brought up some interesting points. But my general takeaway would be that DeSantis and Newsom are so far away from each other in opposite directions. 
And it seems like neither one talks to too many people on the other side because, for example, they talked about gay rights and trans rights. And DeSantis kept talking about how Newsom's basically willing to pay for everyone to get a sex change and how Newsom wants everyone to be non-binary and how they're putting gay porn in schools. And then Newsom's like, we don't teach that in our schools. That is not the criteria. And, and he's like, we just want to protect trans individuals that are adults if they want to get the surgeries and stuff. But then also Newsom's talking about how DeSantis wants to just ban everything and doesn't want any rights in Florida. And I just feel like both of these guys just have the caricature of the other side engraved in their in their skulls. And that's what it came here is that they were kind of just talking past each other. And Newsom, you know, is talking about how DeSantis wants to ban all books. DeSantis talking about how Newsom basically is allowing gay porn in schools. And I mean, <laughs> I think Newsom had more of a case, though, because it is true that the don't say gay bill, for example, and also just, yeah, the Florida Board of Education talking about how slaves, for example, gained some useful skills during the, during slavery, stuff like that makes it kind of hard to really say DeSantis isn't doing crazy stuff in Florida. But that was my big takeaway was these two guys just seemed like caricatures and they were disconnected and not really listening to each other. And, you know, also, I mean, they were they really were caricatures of each side. Like Newsom gives off that liberal elite Hollywood playboy kind of vibe. And DeSantis looks like kind of a red state ex-military bully. And so and then, of course, they have the red background behind DeSantis and the blue background behind Newsom. And you're like, these are just caricatures of what the other side thinks of the other side. You know what I mean? And and, and of course, it, it was also true at the end when Hannity asked them each to give Biden a grade. Newsom A, DeSantis F, duh. Now, let's see, what, what were some interesting things in it? I think, um, I think DeSantis brought up a good point when he did mention that the middle class is shrinking in California. And that is something that I just anecdotally see, having spent a lot of my life in California, is that it's getting more expensive. And a lot of the middle class have, are, are moving, moving to Nevada, moving to Texas, moving to Oregon, moving to Idaho. You just see it. And I think that was right. But then, but then Newsom basically is attacked about high taxes in California. And I think he does a good job and just nails DeSantis for regressive taxes in Florida because that's what Florida does a lot of. And he makes the point that even though taxes are technically lower in Florida, it just means the millionaires and billionaires are paying less taxes. And instead, the poor are paying these regressive taxes. And regressive taxes meaning taxes on day-to-day -day items or certain goods that maybe lower-income people are using. And so DeSantis, I mean, I mean, not DeSantis, Newsom just kind of makes the point that DeSantis seems to care more about corporate America and the elites. And and in California, they're trying to make things better. Now, of course, California crime is up, no doubt. They talk about that. Newsom, I do have to say, seems a little bit in denial about homelessness and crime in California, which from everything you see is up. All you have to do is just look at the cities like Los Angeles, like San Francisco. I was reading an article where some people went into the Skid Row in Los Angeles and said that they were seeing drug use and sexual assault and just day-to-day -day living that rivaled southeastern like slums basically and so I did notice that time and time again Newsom seemed a little bit out of touch with California's issues now of course DeSantis even tried to deny his six-month abortion ban and denied any any regulation in schools or any of the book bans 
So these are two guys that were in denial. And, of course, Hannity didn't really push much. And now the debate that I found interesting was on COVID. And it is true that Florida and California were actually pretty close in COVID deaths and both had very different responses to COVID. But the irony here is DeSantis keeps talking about how he, he opened schools earlier. California, you know, kept schools locked down for years and it led to a brain drain. And the irony, though, to me, it's that DeSantis opened the schools a lot earlier but he's also done a lot more to limit freedom of education in Florida. And so basically the kids came back quicker, but he put all these book bans in place and limits on what teachers can do and these new board recommendations where some of these kids aren't even learning what they should be anyways. So there's just a disconnect. Of course, <laughs> then DeSantis again attacking people like Newsom. I don't think Newsom will ever live down the French laundry scandal where he's found out eating while everything's locked down. I don't think he'll ever outlive putting his kids in private schools while he shut down public schools in California. And it's interesting, though, because DeSantis talks about how these liberal elites want to impose burdens on you, but don't want to be accountable. And then I always just think about Trump, the leader of the Republican Party, <laughs> the, the face of hypocrisy and double standards, right? And, I mean, I could go down this list, but... I think, I think once again, we see that Newsom is quicker on his feet. He's a more skilled politician. I think he's smarter. And he's definitely more likable. He was able to smile. I wish I had video for this one because there's some clips of DeSantis trying to smile. And it's like he's a AI. He's like ChatGBT trying to figure out how to smile if there was like a physical version of ChatGBT. Like the guy just looks so uncomfortable doing human activities and it just it's hard to watch him sometimes and <laughs> I think Newsom had some good lines like for example he talks about how he loves that DeSantis is backing the blue but then he dangled pardons for January Sixers he also asked DeSantis to just drop out so he can give Nikki Haley a chance he also calls Ron nothing but a bully and one of my favorite things, too, is that he talks about how basically in several weeks, DeSantis is going to be endorsing Donald Trump. And I thought that was a real, real banger. <laughs> so anyways, at the end of the day, both of these guys look like car salesmen. DeSantis is selling you a used Toyota Camry. Newsom is selling luxury cars in Burbank. But one way or another, these are politicians who I think spent more time talking about or not talking about, but attacking each other and ignoring the realities of their own states, which are both not perfect. And I don't like it when they try to sugarcoat it and make them both sound perfect. My other question, why does DeSantis still pronounce or mispronounce Kamala Harris, Kamala or Kamala or whatever he says? Like everyone knows how to pronounce her name at this point, but some of these right-wingers still mispronounce it. It's probably just racism at this point because they know it's an Indian name. I don't know what else it could be. But anyways, I didn't really learn much from this. It could have been a lot better. For Hannity's credit, I actually think he did a fairly good job. He was biased, but he also was fairly respectable. And I do kind of like how him and Newsom actually have a pretty good rapport with one another. So look, it was a fairly entertaining hour, but there was not much else to it. Of course, I watched like Kaylee McEnany and um, Ari Fleischer and a few of these other people afterwards, and they were saying it was clear DeSantis won and that Newsom was in some 
Fantasyland. I didn't see that, but that's how Fox News saw it, which is not particularly surprising. Before we move on, I just want to play this quick one-minute clip that kind of plays some of the highlights from the debate, just so you can kind of get an idea of how it went. This is a CNN clip that they put out, and I think it's, it's, there's some funny parts in it, so I'll play it. There's one thing in closing that we have in common is neither of us will be the nominee for our party in 2024. You seven. have six or $7 a gallon gas. How do they, how do they afford that? These are folks that are blue collar people. You were talking You're going to force everybody to buy an electric state. vehicle. How are they going to be able to afford electric vehicles? I don't like the way you demean people. I don't like the way you demean the LGBTQ community. I don't like the way you demean and humiliate people you disagree with, Ron. You have the freedom to defecate in public in California. You have the freedom to pitch a tent on Sunday. Sunset Boulevard. You have the freedom to create a homeless encampment under a freeway and even light it on fire. You have the, the freedom to uh, have an open air drug market and use drugs. He thinks Biden and Harris have done a great job. He thinks the economy is working because of their policies for Americans, and they are not. And so what California represents is the Biden-Harris agenda on steroids. Here's a guy who celebrated Bidenomics just this week, celebrating $28 million that came into your state because of the Chips and Science Act, one of the most significant economic plans right. since FDR. I'm proud of the work Biden and Harris have done. And again, whether you like Newsom or not, I have always given him credit because at least he comes in with facts and he does actually serve as a good arguer and defender of the Biden-Harris administration. Now, my, my criticism, though, of Newsom would actually be that sometimes I think he's wasting too much of his time defending the Biden-Harris administration, and maybe he should make more of a case for himself. If he was bold, he would have just came out and ran against Biden and announced a year ago, because now, obviously, it's too late. But I, I bet if he ran, he could probably beat Trump. I, I do think that. Moving on, though, the last thing I do want to talk about is Israel and Hamas for a little bit. I know I promised uh, Russia, Ukraine, how it looks like Russia is taking advantage of political tension in Ukraine and Russia is doing better. We're going to have to table that for tomorrow just for time reasons. But I do want to just talk about how it looks like the truce, the ceasefire, whatever you want to call it, is over, at least for the time being. The Economist wrote this morning here in quotes, the seven-day truce between Hamas and Israel came to an abrupt end. Israel said it had resumed fighting in Gaza after shooting down a rocket launched from the enclave. The Israeli military also dropped leaflets over Khan Yunus, the most northerly big city in southern Gaza, warning residents to move further south. Benjamin Netanyahu's Israel, sorry, Benjamin Netanyahu, Israel's prime minister, claimed that Hamas had reneged on the terms of the truce by failing to release some of the agreed-upon hostages. Hamas accused Israel of breaking its commitment to allow fuel trucks into Gaza. Again, fog of war. It's hard to sometimes know who to believe. I don't really trust Hamas. And I also know that some of the far-right elements of the Israeli government are also not acting in good faith here. But I would not be surprised if it's a little bit of both here. Of course, Hamas acting in good faith, not always something that happens. And interestingly enough, the dynamics over the last week have included Netanyahu coming under pressure from his own right-wing elements in his government. They want him to restart the war. And this is something that Israel has continually said it is going to do once hostages are released. And of course, I've said since the beginning, Israel has a right to respond to what Hamas has done on October 7th. But at the same time, I do worry about what the far right elements of his government actually want to do. It seems like they want to do more than just respond to the attack. It does seem like they want to 
level parts of Gaza and set up more settlements there and make sure that there really is never a Palestinian state. And that does worry me a lot. And organizations like the UN and Human Rights Watch are very concerned about what's happening there. So you can, you know, I, I'm, I've gotten tired of people saying it's anti-Semitic to criticize what the Israeli government's doing or criticizing Israel's response to Hamas. They, sh they should be able to respond to Hamas, but I think it's okay to criticize some of the violent, indiscriminate attacks that have happened that have killed over 10,000, maybe up to 20,000 people at this point. And, you know, I've, I've, I've heard reports about them talking about building an island, a man-made island off the coast where the Palestinians can go, which sounds horrific to me. There's talks about trying to get e Egypt to take them or the United States kicking all of them off the land. I think that's why a lot of Palestinians haven't wanted to leave when they've been warned to leave. It is a mess. But then on the other side, Hamas hasn't honored some of the hostage releases. And some of the people that were supposed to be released, their names have gotten out. Hamas follows the news and now they didn't release them or said they never had them. So Hamas is not acting in good faith here either. But it is a really tricky issue. Now, People do think that there is still hope for another ceasefire or another humanitarian pause to free more hostages and prisoners. And Qatar has obviously been paying, playing a crucial role in negotiations over the ceasefire. And the BBC writes that on Friday, it did confirm that they were continuing talks with the aim of returning to a pause. Again, I am not a huge Qatar fan, but if they can work towards some sort of humanitarian efforts or at least conversations, then I am all for it because it's getting pretty catastrophic and tragic. And the Biden administration also needs to keep putting pressure on Israel to stop these bombings, which it does seem like in, in a sense they've slowed down, but I don't know for how long because Netanyahu has a lot of pressure from his right-wing elements. And to put some numbers into this, during the seven-day ceasefire, Hamas agreed to release 110 people from Gaza. 78 Israeli women and children were part of that. Part of the deal, 240 Palestinians were also released from jail. They, some of them had been accused of murder, inciting riots, others for throwing stones. It's quite a range of younger people that may or may not have actually committed a crime and true terrorists that were locked up. And both sides have hostages. Like, it, it is very clear of that. The language has really changed. Like, if you're reading coverage of the Israelis being taken, it's always hostages and innocent children. But the coverage about the Palestinians is always criminals or prisoners. And so the language is not being used correctly. There are hostages on both sides, no doubt about it. And there are definitely Israeli camps and prisons where they have taken hostages as well. This is what happens when you have a brutal religious, cultural, sectarian war that's gone back for a very long time. And so not good news. Not good to see that bombings have started again, but as, as I was recording, I did see an update that some people are, prom, are optimistic, would be the right word, that there are talks of maybe another pause, but Hamas would actually need to put out a list of the hostages they're going to release ahead of time so that no changes can be made, and I'm assuming Israel would have to release more hostages as well. So the, the only like silver lining or cup half full I would have for this is that this hasn't expanded into a bigger conflict outside of the area, and at least some hostages on both sides have been released. But I think there's still a lot of dark days ahead, and I do worry about what 
the right wing parts of the Israeli government want to do. And I think there are elements inside of the government that would be fine with wiping out all of Gaza and all of Palestine. And we just can't let that happen. And we also need to make sure that Hamas doesn't exist because I don't see peace in Palestine either with a group like Hamas still there. So it is really complicated. I will not pretend to have any answers. But on that light note, we will end this episode. So as always, you can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean. You guys know the rest. And anyways, <sighs> attention United States. This is Alex Kapitko, 10-year student of politics, Truckee, California, 1994, signing out. Good night. And shout out to Gail Lewis for that great TikTok reel. So anyways, have a great day.